0: We come this morning to the third parable told consecutively by Jesus in the last week of his life after he's entered Jerusalem. The three parables we've said they, they deal in increasing intensity and fierce conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leadership. You'll remember the first parable was about the two sons. And it depicted the leaders as those who said yes to God, but then didn't obey. And there Jesus said that the kingdom is being given to tax collectors and to prostitutes who originally said no to God, but now they were responding to John the Baptist. And Jesus says to the Jewish leaders, not even this moved you to repentance. And then last week we saw in the parable of the wicked tenants That Israel, which had rejected the prophets, was about to kill the Son of God. And that the kingdom was going to be torn away from Israel. They were going to be evicted from the vineyard. And a new nation would receive it. Now we can look at these parables in the following manner. In the parable of the two sons. Now remember, the three parables are told back to back by Jesus. In the parable of the two sons, he pronounces a verdict on Israel. You're guilty of rejecting the kingdom. In the parable of the tenants, he pronounces the sentence. The kingdom is going to be torn from you. And then here in our text today, the third parable, the parable of the wedding feast, the sentence is executed. And executed with quite a vengeance. Judgment finally falls in this parable. And so the parables follow this sequence, this order of increasing judicial process, verdict, sentence, judgment. It's also interesting to note that the three parables have a kind of historical sequence. In the first, Jesus says to Israel, you rejected John the Baptist. In the second, he says, You killed the son of the vineyard, me. Here he's going to say, and you will go on to reject my servants who I send to you as well. Christian ministers of the gospel. So this parable is the closer, if you will, uh, of the three. But as is often the case with Jesus and the parables, there are some surprises in store here. So we'll look at this text from Matthew 22 under five headings. Five headings, they should be there in your, uh, on your insert. Uh, refusal is first in verses 1 through 6. And then destruction in verse 7. Gathering in verses 8 through 10. And then judgment, 11 through 13. And election in verse 14. So it's refusal, destruction, destruction. Gathering, judgment, election. It's not complicated. So first, the refusal. The kingdom is compared to a king, verse 2, who gave a wedding banquet or a feast for his son. It's right to see the king as God here and the son is an image for Christ. And we get this important, very common metaphor for the kingdom. The kingdom is a wedding feast. The kingdom is a sumptuous banquet. This is the way it's depicted throughout Scripture. We saw it uh, in the passage that was used for our call to worship this morning in Isaiah 25, speaking of that messianic kingdom. The prophet says, On this mountain, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well aged wine. He will swallow up death forever. The kingdom is a wedding feast. And Jesus comes and his own ministry intensifies this theme. He eats and he drinks with sinners. He speaks of people coming from the ends of the earth to recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He institutes the Lord's Supper as a meal, anticipating the final wedding supper of the Lamb. He says to his disciples, you're going to eat and drink with me in the kingdom of God. He places eating and drinking right into the center of our understanding of the kingdom of God. The kingdom that has come in Jesus is joy to the world. It is a feast. And this is what has already begun in the life and the ministry of our Savior. So here he sends out his servants to call those who are invited to the wedding feast. And we should assume that they've already accepted the invitation. Notice the text says that those who are called had already been invited. There was a double invitation system to weddings in these days. First, you sent out the invitations to announce the feast and get acceptance. right? And that enables you to prepare the right number of animals for slaughter and make all the necessary arrangements. In this case, for the wedding of the king's son, all of this would be being done on a grand scale. And then when everything was ready, you would call the guests again. The second part of the invitation system. And it's this second invitation that's going on here in verses 3 and 4. So the servants go out. They call the invited guests. But we're told bluntly in verse 3, they refuse to come. They refuse to come. So here, as we've seen before, it's the Israelite leaders who are being called. But they reject the call. It's a very blunt refusal, but the king is patient, so in verse 4 he sends more servants. Again, this is Jesus' way of reminding them that God the Father continually sends you prophets. Prophet after prophet after prophet, culminating in this generation in his son and finally in the disciples of Jesus who would be sent out also to preach first to Israel beginning at Jerusalem. And so now the king in the parable starts to speak with some urgency about the glory of this feast and about how the preparation and all the work that went into it. He says, tell them I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted calves, they've been butchered. Everything is ready. Everything is ready. This is the heart of The gospel. It's the heart of Jesus' message in culinary form. Everything is ready, come to the wedding feast. That's the gospel. It's a joyful, universal call, which is why you should stick around for the fellowship meal downstairs. Fellowship meals are not just a meal. They're not equivalent to grabbing a meal at McDonald's. They're a sign of the kingdom. It's very important for your soul that you eat and drink with the saints on a regular basis. That's why we have the supper. That's why we have fellowship meals. But the call is far from compelling to the leadership in Israel. You can see this in verse 5. They pay no attention. They're not interested. They've got stuff to do. Matthew tells us one went to his field and another went to his business. These are men of action. They don't have time to sit around at a banquet. They're businessmen. And the urgency of their own lives displaces the urgency of the kingdom. We all know people like this. They're frenetic, they're frantic. They've got so much stuff to do in their little vaporizing existence (laughs) that they can't come to the wedding feast. So they ignore the call. Now, it's very important to step back here and realize in this culture, meals had a lot more significance, a lot more social significance than they have in our culture. Various notions of honor and shame and social order were all bound up with meals, with people eating together and the protocols that went along with meals. I have a very good friend. He's a a retired uh, colonel in the United States Army. And I remember him telling me of his time in Bosnia. He was in charge of providing the security for a whole city, a city of 70,000 people. And he was the lead guy. So if there were warlords and factions and other groups, they negotiated with him. And he said the first thing he had to learn was that in that culture, you eat whatever the people put in front of you. He says you never politely decline. That would be an enormous fellowship breaking act. And he said it would prohibit his ability to gather intelligence. So he said, if I'm offered a cigarette, I take it and I smoke it. doesn't matter if I don't smoke. I smoke now. And he said, I had to learn to eat the sheep's head with the eyes still in it. Because to decline the meal would be an insult. Well, much the same spirit is true in the biblical culture of our text. Especially the fact, remember, this is a meal given by the king. And it's his son's wedding on top of it. In addition to all of this, this meal has political implications about one's allegiance to the king. It's very crucial to grasp this because if we don't, we're not going to understand the bloody violence that's about to ensue in this text. Right? The refusal to attend this meal is a statement that you reject this marriage that you think the king's son is unworthy, and by implication, you're renouncing your allegiance to the king. Remember, the parable's about Israel's failure to come to the wedding feast of the Son of God. So the people who don't come here, they're not just saying, no thanks, I'm a vegetarian, weddings make me cry. This is not a minor social breach. They're engaged in repudiating the king and his son. So refusal to come here is, is tantamount to, res- to uh, insurrection. It's a form of rebellion. Right? This is what Thomas More in the, in the 1550s, in his quarrel with Henry VIII, he refused to attend the coronation of Henry's second wife. And it was one of the things which got him executed for treason. Refusal is revolutionary here. You can see this in verse 6. The rest of the people, that is, the people who didn't just say, I have to go off to my farm and my business, but the rest of them, they seized the servants. They mistreated them and they killed them. It's a picture of what would happen to Christian witnesses. So they're not just writing no on the RSVP card, they're committing high treason. And the servants here are best seen as Christian witnesses, as I mentioned. And the time frame right here at this point in the parable is between about 30 A.D., the time of Jesus' resurrection, and 70 A.D. when the Romans burned and destroyed Jerusalem. This is Israel's very last hour. That's why Jesus saves this parable for the end of his life. So this brings us to the second point. point, second point, which is destruction. Verse seven. The king was enraged and he sent his army and destroyed those murderers, burned their city. This is a clear allusion by our Lord to this horrific judgment, which befell Israel in 70 AD at the hands of the Roman army. Actually, there was about a three-year Roman-Jewish war, 67 to 70 A.D. The army burned the temple, destroyed it, and destroyed large parts of the city. This invasion, which Jesus is prophesying about here, is described in brutal graphic terms by Josephus, the great first-century Jewish historian. And Josephus tells us that of the two million Jews in the city at the time of the war, one million were killed and another one million were sent into exile. The cutting off of Israel is complete. Israel's the second son. They said yes, but they didn't obey. They're the tenants who didn't produce fruit. They're the invited guests who refused to come to the wedding. Their city is destroyed. But the story's not over. And that brings us to the third point, the gathering. God does not cancel the wedding feast. In verse 8, the king says, The wedding banquet's ready, but those I invited didn't deserve to come. So this kingdom call goes out beyond the borders of Israel. Go out into the streets, invite to the banquet anyone you find, he says. This is the free, sincere offer of the gospel to all men. Whoever is hungry may find bread here. Whoever is thirsty is called to come and dr- drink at the king's table. And so the Christian servants go out. The gospel goes out in verse 10. They gather all they found, the text says, both good and bad. That's a, it's, a, it's a picture of the mixed character of the church. The call goes out and the church has good people and bad people and they all respond in one way or another and they end up seated right here next to you. The good and the bad. And so many respond to the gospel that the wedding hall is full of guests. It's a picture of the gospel going out to the Gentiles now that Israel's refused it. And that brings us to the fourth point, the judgment. Verse 11, this is a reference to the final judgment now. We've moved way past the judgment on Israel in 70 AD. We move up to a scene that takes us to the final judgment. The king, the text says, comes in to see. Literally, the text says he comes in to inspect the guests. The guests are assembled. The king comes in. He starts inspecting the guests. He sees a man without proper wedding clothes. Now the parable doesn't say exactly what this means. What the clothes were supposed to be. But given the social setting, all it would probably mean is a a clean white garment. Now I must say, I have a certain sympathy for this poor man in the parable. And it goes back to a time before Cheryl and I were even dating. Uh, We were friends and we both ended up at the wedding of a mutual friend. And I showed up. Now, I was 21 or two years old, and I was a single guy living out of an apartment. So I showed up, shall we say, underdressed. Jeans, like a flannel shirt, probably some ragged jacket. And I slipped into the church, and I sat in my pew. And Cheryl was sitting behind me, and she taps me on the shoulder and says, What are you thinking? Have you never read that parable about the guy who gets thrown out of the wedding feast? (laughs) So I always think of that incident when I read this parable. But whatever you might say about my lack of uh, social graces, that's really not the issue with this guy's lack of a wedding garment. To not have one on, to not have the right wedding garment here, is like the refusal of the first invited guest. It's a sign of, of, of great rebellion and disrespect against the king. Right? The fundamental point here about this man is he has responded to the gospel. He has. That's why he's in the wedding hall. right? The, the servants went out. People came in. But he has made no preparation for life in the kingdom. He has faith without works. He's sitting in the church to be sure, but he doesn't have the right clothes on. Right, the book of Revelation tells us that the final wedding supper of the Lamb, this wedding that we're seeing in our text is a, is a foretaste of that, the bride makes herself ready with fine linen, white and pure, and the text tells us that that linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So the garment here is not just legal acquittal, being clothed with Christ's righteousness. The garment includes a life of righteous deeds. And this man doesn't have anything. And so this is not a trivial fashion oversight, as mine was. This is an act of great presumption. It's inexcusable. And that's why when he's asked, he's speechless. He's silent. He has no defense. He's a fraudulent disciple. There's no, hey, I'm sorry, my suit was in the cleaners. What's the big deal anyway? So the king has him bound in verse 13. And he's cast into the outer darkness, which is a picture of everlasting regret and judgment. Now, we naturally recoil from this kind of language in our day. But as we've seen, the parables are full of it. To recoil from this sort of language is to recoil from the Jesus of the Gospels. Without a vivid sense of the horror of judgment, grace would not be grace. Salvation is meaningless if there's nothing dreadful to be saved from. And it's the stark reality of this judgment that charges your life with meaning, with dignity, with moral purpose. And that brings us to the last point, election. The king says, Many are called or many are invited in, in verse 14, but few are chosen. Believe it or not, this is actually the main point of the parable. This verse. This is the main point. Israel had been presumptuous about its election. Right? Israel said, We're the elect nation. We've got this by birthright. We, we own this kingdom. So Jesus appears and calls them to repentance, and they're like, ah, we've got work to do. We're busy. We've got farms, we've got fields, we've got businesses. And so Jesus is saying, look, Israel can no longer think of itself as the elect people, or, ex- or at least exclusively the elect people. That's the scandal of the text. Their city's going to be burned. But it's also a warning for us. It's a sober, bracing warning for us as well. Because even though you and I have been called to the feasts after 70 A.D., We can commit the same treachery. Right, that's the point of the second half of the parable. The man has the wrong clothes on. Simply being present in the church, simply coming to the feast of the Lord's Supper will not save you. There's nothing mechanical or magical about the sacraments. You can be in the church. You can have the clothing on. You can have responded to the gospel. But you could also be just as presumptuous as Israel. Was We can be just as preoccupied with our farms and our businesses Our private affairs We can be just as deaf to the call of Jesus to discipleship And we can convince ourselves that we're elect and thus untouchable And so this is a text about election But it's a text about election that reform people desperately need to hear Many are called, Jesus says, or many are invited in some translations. And this refers to the outward call of the gospel. Many in Israel and many later in the church hear the call. They hear the gospel, they make some response. But the text goes on and says, but few are chosen. Few are elect. It would be as if Jesus came into this room and pointed at us and said, Many in this room have been summoned by the gospel, but few are going to enter the kingdom of heaven on the last day. Think of how scandalous that would be. Not, not, not a hefty majority. Not half. Few. Few. Yes, many have been called. Few are chosen. Now, the per- this, this reference to election does, is shown in action in the text. The text does not say, well... Election is God's secret. I can't know it. That's all true. But here, in this text, people show their elect by what type of garment they have on. That's how you know you're elect. When the king inspects your garment, he sees righteousness. He sees obedience. He sees good deeds. Not perfection, of course, but he sees a life of discipleship. So if, we, if you ever wonder about your election... This parable teaches you, look, you can't search out God's secrets. There's no list of who's elect and who's not elect in Scripture. There's only the fact that God elects and then there's the visible fruits. So we have to look to Christ. We have to cling to Christ. We have to renounce ourselves and seek first the kingdom and its righteousness. We have to put him on and seek to do good. And if you're struggling in that pathway or you stumble in it or you falter, you can still confirm and be assured of your election if you're clinging to Christ. This is why John Calvin said Christ is the bright mirror of our election. We don't try and sneak behind Jesus Christ and get into the mind of God. That'll drive a person crazy. How do you know you're elect? Because I cling to Christ for cleansing and I seek to follow Him. And when I sin, I repent. I keep my garment clean. So, just like Israel, you and I, we have to forsake presumption. Presumption is deadly in the Christian life. And yes, there are things, lots of them actually, things like our farms and our businesses, which we must be occupied with. But let us not be preoccupied with them. And there's a big difference between being occupied with the things you must tend to in life and being preoccupied such that when the call of the gospel comes, you say, no, I'm busy with the farm. So clothe yourself in Christ. Put on the new man, wash your garments in his blood and make them white with good deeds. You have a joyful wedding feast to attend. Do not miss it for the world. Amen.